Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Cherokee Phoenix, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Detroit Free Press, the Kansas City Star, the Atlanta Black Star, USA Today, and Men's Health Magazine. And I'm going to start off today's program with some news and information from the Chicago Tribune newspaper. The title of the article is, The Reverend Jesse Jackson Stepping Down from Rainbow Push Coalition. It was written by Darcel Rocket and Robert Chanick and published July 15, 2023. The Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr., who was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease eight years ago, is stepping down from the Rainbow Push Coalition, the influential Chicago-based civil rights organization he founded through its predecessor, Operation Push, more than 50 years ago. In seeding day-to-day operations last year, Jackson, 81, is formally handing the reins to his successor, the Reverend Frederick Douglass Haynes III, a senior pastor at Friendship West Baptist Church in Dallas. Haynes said it's an honor to be chosen for this role. I confess that when he first approached me about doing this, I was blown away, he said. Haynes said he has long been a student and follower of Jackson's. One of the things that I am quick to say is that of all the degrees I may have, I must also confess that I've studied at the University of Jesse Jackson, he said. I first heard of him as a college student at Bishop College in Dallas, Texas, and I was just blown away because I was trying to find my way in ministry. Through the years, my formation and justice work had everything to do with Reverend Jackson. With the new leadership in place, Jackson is quick to admit his future plans. I'm not retiring at all, Jackson said Friday. I want to focus a lot more on economic justice, peace in the world. I'm just pivoting to a different platform. According to Jackson, pivoting means he will spend the majority of his time teaching about how to fight the nonviolent fight when it comes to injustice. I want to teach more, all what I've learned to the other preachers. How do you fight the nonviolent fight? Focus on affirmative action, loan debt, focus on pulling gun shops down, Jackson said. Jackson will offer his guidance in academic settings as well as in the field. He said he will double efforts to get reparations for the three remaining survivors of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. A lawsuit filed by the survivors was recently dismissed by an Oklahoma judge. Jackson said he deliberated for a while on his decision to step down as president of Rainbow Push. It's been very difficult to find people who have the ability to step into the fire, Jackson said. But after speaking with Bishop Tavis Grant, national executive director of the Rainbow Push Coalition, as well as the Reverend Al Sharpton and Jackson's son and longtime Rainbow Push National Spokesman Representative Jonathan Jackson, the elder Jackson made the decision. Noting his less-than-frequent travel these days and his decades in the struggle for justice, Jackson said now is the time for a transfer of leadership. With someone managing the staff of Rainbow Push, he can focus on fundraising and helping the new leader acclimate to the role. Jackson said the reversal of affirmative action, the continued attack on the Voting Rights Act, and the high cost of college are all on his agenda. He also wants to spend more time getting people out of foreign jails, including in Syria, Kuwait, and Kosovo. The Supreme Court is setting the agenda. Affirmative action, health care for women, rights in education. But we can't afford that. They're trying to take back the rights that protect the right to vote, Jackson said. The agenda is set by the opposition. I want Rainbow Push to survive in that struggle, and we have to have leadership to help us. 
Haynes said it is a lot of pressure to take up the mantle after Jackson, but he said it's a good heavy. I feel real good about what it is I'm called to do, and because of my relationship with him, that is even more helpful, he said. I'll be honest. The response I'm receiving from around the country has been overwhelmingly positive and supportive because we don't know life without push in Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr. What he was doing in 63, we need in 23. Headquartered in a former temple in the Kenwood neighborhood in the South Side, the Rainbow Push Coalition has long been Jackson's national advocacy platform to promote economic, educational, and political change including two groundbreaking campaigns for the Democratic presidential nomination in the 1980s. Born in Greenville, South Carolina in 1941, Jackson gained national prominence during the civil rights movement of the 1960s after attending Chicago Theological Seminary. The city became his home for six decades and the center of operations for the organizations he would lead and grow into a movement. Jackson met the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. in 1965 and the following year became the head of the Chicago chapter of Operation Breadbasket, the economic arm of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference aimed at promoting employment in the black community. Following King's assassination in 1968, Jackson's stature in the civil rights movement grew, helping to fill the leadership void. In 1971, Jackson resigned from the SCLC and founded Operation Push in Chicago, expanding the mission of education and economic empowerment for people of color. Jackson ventured into national politics in the 1980s, delivering a stirring speech at the 1984 Democratic National Convention and placing third in the nomination for president behind Walter Mondale and Gary Hart, garnering more than 3 million votes. In 1988, Jackson made a second bid for the Democratic presidential nomination, winning the Michigan primary before losing to the eventual candidate, Michael Dukakis. In 1996, Jackson merged two of his initiatives, creating the Rainbow Push Coalition, which he continued to lead into the new millennium. Other civil rights leaders are already weighing in on Jackson's legacy and his impending retirement. The resignation of Reverend Jesse Jackson is the pivoting of one of the most productive, prophetic, and dominant figures in the struggle for social justice in American history, Sharpton said in a statement Friday. It was my honor, since my mother brought me to him at 12 years old to serve as the youth director for the New York chapter of Operation Breadbasket down through the last decade to have been a student and protege of his. Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson also expressed his appreciation to Jackson as a mentor, friend, and civil rights icon. The Reverend Jesse L. Jackson is an architect of the soul of Chicago, Johnson said in a statement. Jackson's eldest daughter, Santita Jackson, said given that her father has been focused on the local and global fight for injustice for so long, she is grateful that God has given him the length of years to deliver breadth and depth of service. Very few people are able, have the grace and space to serve in public life at this level of intensity and exposure and with such a high profile for 60 years, she said. But he's been able to do that. And quite frankly, we've not seen leaders who are black live this long. They don't get gray, they get a grave. That was the article, The Reverend Jesse Jackson Stepping Down from Rainbow Push Coalition. It was written by Darcel Rocket and Robert Chanick and was published July 15, 2023 in the Chicago Tribune newspaper. My next reading is from the Cherokee Phoenix newspaper and it's CherokeePhoenix.org website. The title is University of Tulsa hosting Cherokee Freedmen Exhibit Downtown. 
It was written by the Cherokee Phoenix staff and published August 3, 2023. The Cherokee Nation is partnering with the University of Tulsa's Oklahoma Center for the Humanities to further share the story of the Cherokee freedmen and explore the tribe's history with black slavery. We Are Cherokee, Cherokee Freedmen and the Right to Citizenship opened on August 4th at 101 East Archer Street in downtown Tulsa. The free exhibit will remain on display Wednesdays through Saturdays from 12 to 5 p.m. through September 23rd. This exhibition showcases the journey of Cherokee Freedmen, illuminating an unwavering determination in the face of adversity, Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. said. It serves as a tribute to the enduring spirit of our freedmen brothers and sisters and reaffirms our commitment to reconciliation, honoring the deep bond that unites us as Cherokee people. The exhibit first debuted in Taliqua at the Cherokee National History Museum last year with an impactful narrative that details the fight Cherokee freedmen endured to take back their treaty-protected right to Cherokee Nation citizenship. The exhibit shares the Cherokee people's earliest known participation in chattel slavery in the 18th century on through various historical milestones in the decades that followed, including the adoption of plantation-style slavery among Cherokees, Indian removal to the West, and the American Civil War. It also shares how the Treaty of 1866 granted freed slaves and Cherokee Nation the same rights as native Cherokees. The exhibit also discusses the steps taken by the tribe to strip freedmen and their descendants of tribal citizenship and examines the 2017 U.S. District Court ruling that upheld the Treaty of 1866 and reaffirmed Cherokee freedmen as citizens of the Cherokee Nation. Tulsa University's Oklahoma Center for the Humanities is proud to once again partner with the Cherokee Nation as we seek to tell the stories of this land and those who call it home, said Tulsa University President Brad Carson, who is a Cherokee citizen. As the region's premier institution teaching and examining the arts and humanities, the University of Tulsa is committed to supporting the diverse voices that enrich our city and our state. That was the article titled, University of Tulsa Hosting Cherokee Freedman Exhibit Downtown. It was published August 3, 2023 in the Cherokee Phoenix newspaper at its CherokeePhoenix.org website. My next reading is from the Chicago Sun-Times newspaper and its Chicago.SunTimes.com website. The title is, Biden to create Emmett Till National Monument at Chicago Church where his open casket was displayed. It was written by Lynn Sweet and published July 22, 2023. The subtitle is, A White House official said Biden will sign a proclamation on Tuesday, July 25th to establish the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley National Monument in Chicago and Mississippi. On Tuesday, July 25th, the 82nd anniversary of the birth of Emmett Till, the black Chicago youth whose lynching helped launch the civil rights movement, President Joe Biden will establish the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley National Monument in Bronzeville at the church where his mutilated body was displayed in his open casket. A White House official said that Biden will sign a proclamation to establish the monument at three sites, one on Chicago's south side and two in Mississippi. The new monument will protect places that tell the story of Emmett Till's too short life and racially motivated murder, the unjust acquittal of his murderers, and the activism of his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, who courageously brought the world's attention to the brutal injustices and racism of the time 
catalyzing the civil rights movement, the official said. Till, 14, was killed August 28, 1955 by white men while visiting relatives in Mississippi. He was kidnapped from his great-uncle's home for allegedly whistling at a white woman. History.com recounts that Till's assailants, the white woman's husband and his brother, made Till carry a 75-pound cotton gin fan to the banks of the Tallahatchie River and order him to take off his clothes. The two men then beat him nearly to death, gouged out his eye, shot him in the head, and threw his body tied to the cotton gin fan with barbed wire into the river. The monument will consist of three sites. Roberts Temple Church of God in Christ. Till's lynching became a turning point in civil rights history because a key decision by his mother showed the world her son was a victim of lynching. Mamie Till Mobley insisted on an open casket for a September 6, 1955 funeral at the church so the world could see Till's mutilated body and witness the deadly results of race-based violence. Photographs of Till's body published in two Chicago-based black publications, Jet and the Chicago Defender and other newspapers sparked an outcry. Till's original casket is on display at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Grabal Landing in Mississippi, where Till's body was pulled from the Tallahatchie River, and the Tallahatchie County 2nd District Courthouse in Sumner, Mississippi, where Till's killers were wrongly acquitted after being tried by an all-white jury. Tuesday's proclamation signing will be Biden's third Till-related action. In January, Biden signed a measure awarding the Congressional Gold Medal posthumously to Till and his mother. The bill said in part, Till Mobley, in the midst of evil, injustice, and grief, became a catalyst for the civil rights movement and continued in the years to come as she worked for justice and honored the legacy of Emmett Till. In February, during Black History Month, Biden and First Lady Jill Biden hosted a White House screening of the movie Till. In March 2022, at a ceremony on the White House's South Lawn, with members of Till's extended family present, Biden signed the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. The law for the first time defines lynching as a federal hate crime and finally was passed after Congress ignored race-related hate crimes for decades. There are some photographs that go along with this story. The first is a photograph of Emmett Till's mother, Mamie Till Mobley, crying over the open casket of her son at his funeral. The next shows a crowd of people outside of the church where Emmett Till's funeral was held. The caption reads, pallbearers carry the casket of Emmett Till through a crowd gathered outside Roberts Temple Church of God in Christ on September 6, 1955. And the last photograph is a picture of the interior of the church. That was the article, Biden to create Emmett Till National Monument at church where his open casket was displayed. It was published July 22, 2023. It was written by Lynn Sweet, and it was published in the Chicago Sun-Times newspaper. And I'm going to start off today's program with some news and information from the Chicago Tribune newspaper. The title of the article is, The Reverend Jesse Jackson Stepping Down from Rainbow Push Coalition. It was written by Darcel Rocket and Robert Chanick and published July 15th, 2023. The Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr., who was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease eight years ago, is stepping down from the Rainbow Push Coalition, the influential Chicago-based civil rights organization he founded through its predecessor, Operation Push, more than 50 years ago. 
In seeding day-to-day operations last year, Jackson 81 is formally handing the reins to his successor, the Reverend Frederick Douglas Haynes III, a senior pastor at Friendship West Baptist Church in Dallas. Haynes said it's an honor to be chosen for this role. I confess that when he first approached me about doing this, I was blown away, he said. Haynes said he has long been a student and follower of Jackson's. One of the things that I am quick to say is that of all the degrees I may have, I must also confess that I've studied at the University of Jesse Jackson, he said. I first heard of him as a college student at Bishop College in Dallas, Texas, and I was just blown away because I was trying to find my way in ministry. Through the years, my formation and justice work had everything to do with Reverend Jackson. With the new leadership in place, Jackson is quick to admit his future plans. I'm not retiring at all, Jackson said Friday. I want to focus a lot more on economic justice, peace in the world. I'm just pivoting to a different platform. According to Jackson, pivoting means he will spend the majority of his time teaching about how to fight the nonviolent fight when it comes to injustice. I want to teach more, all what I've learned to the other preachers. How do you fight the nonviolent fight? Focus on affirmative action, loan debt. Focus on pulling gun shops down, Jackson said. Jackson will offer his guidance in academic settings as well as in the field. He said he will double efforts to get reparations for the three remaining survivors of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. A lawsuit filed by the survivors was recently dismissed by an Oklahoma judge. Jackson said he deliberated for a while on his decision to step down as president of Rainbow Push. It's been very difficult to find people who have the ability to step into the fire, Jackson said. But after speaking with Bishop Tavis Grant, National Executive Director of the Rainbow Push Coalition, as well as the Reverend Al Sharpton and Jackson's son and longtime Rainbow Push National Spokesman Representative Jonathan Jackson, the elder Jackson made the decision. Noting his less-than-frequent travel these days and his decades in the struggle for justice, Jackson said now is the time for a transfer of leadership. With someone managing the staff of Rainbow Push, he can focus on fundraising and helping the new leader acclimate to the role. Jackson said the reversal of affirmative action, the continued attack on the Voting Rights Act, and the high cost of college are all on his agenda. He also wants to spend more time getting people out of foreign jails, including in Syria, Kuwait, and Kosovo. The Supreme Court is setting the agenda. Affirmative action, health care for women, rights in education. But we can't afford that. They're trying to take back the rights that protect the right to vote, Jackson said. The agenda is set by the opposition. I want Rainbow Push to survive in that struggle, and we have to have leadership to help us. Haynes said it is a lot of pressure to take up the mantle after Jackson, but he said it's a good heavy. I feel real good about what it is I'm called to do, and because of my relationship with him, that is even more helpful, he said. I'll be honest. The response I'm receiving from around the country has been overwhelmingly positive and supportive because we don't know life without push in Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr. What he was doing in 63, we need in 23. Headquartered in a former temple in the Kenwood neighborhood in the South Side, the Rainbow Push Coalition has long been Jackson's national advocacy platform to promote economic, educational, and political change, including two groundbreaking campaigns for the Democratic presidential nomination in the 1980s. Born in Greenville, South Carolina in 1941, Jackson gained national prominence during the civil rights movement of the 1960s after attending Chicago Theological Seminary, 
the city became his home for six decades and the center of operations for the organizations he would lead and grow into a movement. Jackson met the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. in 1965 and the following year became the head of the Chicago chapter of Operation Breadbasket, the economic arm of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference aimed at promoting employment in the black community. Following King's assassination in 1968, Jackson's stature in the civil rights movement grew, helping to fill the leadership void. In 1971, Jackson resigned from the SCLC and founded Operation Push in Chicago, expanding the mission of education and economic empowerment for people of color. Jackson ventured into national politics in the 1980s, delivering a stirring speech at the 1984 Democratic National Convention and placing third in the nomination for president behind Walter Mondale and Gary Hart, garnering more than three million votes. In 1988, Jackson made a second bid for the Democratic presidential nomination, winning the Michigan primary before losing to the eventual candidate, Michael Dukakis. In 1996, Jackson merged two of his initiatives, creating the Rainbow Push Coalition, which he continued to lead into the new millennium. Other civil rights leaders are already weighing in on Jackson's legacy and his impending retirement. The resignation of Reverend Jesse Jackson is the pivoting of one of the most productive, prophetic, and dominant figures in the struggle for social justice in American history, Sharpton said in a statement Friday. It was my honor, since my mother brought me to him at 12 years old, to serve as the youth director for the New York chapter of Operation Breadbasket down through the last decade to have been a student and protege of his. Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson also expressed his appreciation to Jackson as a mentor, friend, and civil rights icon. The Reverend Jesse L. Jackson is an architect of the soul of Chicago, Johnson said in a statement. Jackson's eldest daughter, Santita Jackson, said given that her father has been focused on the local and global fight for injustice for so long, she is grateful that God has given him the length of years to deliver breadth and depth of service. Very few people are able have the grace and space to serve in public life at this level of intensity and exposure and with such a high profile for 60 years, she said. But he's been able to do that. And quite frankly, we've not seen leaders who are black live this long. They don't get gray, they get a grave. That was the article, The Reverend Jesse Jackson Stepping Down from Rainbow Push Coalition. It was written by Darcel Rocket and Robert Chanick, and was published July 15, 2023 in the Chicago Tribune newspaper. My next reading is from the Detroit Free Press newspaper and is freep.com website. The title of the story is, Detroit's 40-year reign as nation's largest majority black city may be over. It was written by Clara Hendrickson and Christy Tanner and was published May 23, 2023. Mayor Mike Duggan blasted recent census estimates for 2022 that show another year of population loss in Detroit. Behind the numbers lies another shift. Detroit appears to no longer stand as the nation's largest majority black city. Since 1980, Detroit's borders have encompassed a larger population than other mostly black cities in the U.S., according to the decennial census, the once-a-decade count of all people in the country. But new population data released in the years between each decennial census show a possible end to Detroit's 40-year reign as America's biggest majority black city. Population estimates released by the U.S. Census Bureau last Thursday show that at 621,056 residents, 
Memphis has a larger population than Detroit's 620,336 as of July 1, 2022. The most recent census survey data showed both cities were majority black cities, with Detroit home to a 76% black population and Memphis to a 63% black population as of 2021. Pair the latest racial demographic and population numbers, and the census estimates show Memphis, not Detroit, is now the nation's largest majority black city by an estimated 680 residents. But experts warn to interpret the numbers with caution. They emphasize that the population estimates are just that, estimates, not to mention the tight margins separating the two cities. Meanwhile, Detroit successfully leveled a challenge to the last decennial census that led to the addition of 1,478 more people to the total count, according to the Duggan administration official overseeing the city's census challenges. And the city could see revisions to the population estimates resulting from additional challenges Duggan's office says it filed last week. Every estimate has to be taken with several grains of salt, said demographer Kurt Metzger, who founded Data-Driven Detroit, which provides data analysis of Detroit and its surrounding region. We may be bigger than Memphis right now. Even if the estimates accurately reflect Memphis had a larger population than Detroit last year, the change may ultimately be an annual blip rather than the start of a long-term trend. Civil rights activist Edith Lee Payne, a 71-year-old from Detroit, questioned Detroit losing its status as the nation's largest majority black city as anything more than symbolic. Actually, I don't think it has any real-world implications, she said. Terrell Garner, 43, who was born and raised in the city, said the label does not affect him. But the two Detroiters stressed that what appears to be driving the shift, population loss, has consequences. As residents leave, dollars follow. It's why filling out the census is so crucial for cities like Detroit. It's just as important as voting, Garner said. I do understand the ramifications where if we have 1 million people in the city and they only show 750,000, there's a lot of federal dollars we're missing out on, Garner said. It affects us greatly when they don't fill out the census. In terms of land area, Memphis is more than twice the size of Detroit, but Detroit's steeper population loss since the end of the 20th century has prompted acute concerns about the city's declining density. Some big cities in the U.S. have more black residents than Detroit, such as Chicago or New York. But in those two cities, black residents make up a smaller share of their total population compared to Detroit. On this measure, the share of black residents in a city, Detroit, with black residents accounting for more than three quarters of the city's population, looks more like Jackson, Mississippi. Since the 2020 census showed the number of black residents in Detroit fell over the previous decade while the city's Hispanic, white and Asian populations grew, demographics in the city have shifted as Detroit has seen an overall decline in its population according to the census data. Detroit lost a quarter of its residents between 2000 and 2010, while the 2020 census showed population loss in the city slowing down, it showed the city continued to shed residents. That was the article, Detroit's 40-year reign as nation's largest majority black city may be over. It was written by Clara Hendrickson and Christy Tanner. It was published by the Detroit Free Press at its freep.com website on May 23, 2023. Next up is an obituary from the Atlanta Black Star newspaper and its atlantablackstar.com website. The title is, He will always be remembered for his battle cry. Tupac's stepfather, 
Black liberation activist Mutulu Shakur dies at 72. It was written by Inyamike Daniel and published July 11, 2023. Mutulu Shakur, Black liberation activist and rapper Tupac Shakur's stepfather, has died at 72 after battling cancer. After 36 years of incarceration, Shakur was finally granted parole in December 2022, primarily due to his deteriorating health after facing numerous rejections from the board. His release came at a time when he had been diagnosed with terminal bone marrow cancer, with doctors predicting he had only six months left to live. The New African People's Organization and the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement released a statement announcing Shakur's death on July 7th. Mutulu's life was transformative to the many people he organized, healed, mentored, and inspired. Dr. Mutulu Shakur taught us that people struggle for liberation because they love the people, the statement says. Shakur's prison sentence stemmed from a 1988 conviction for conspiracy to violate the racketeer-influenced and corrupt organization's RICO Act, as well as bank robbery, armed bank robbery, and murder. He was found guilty of leading an armed revolutionary group responsible for a series of robberies in New York and Connecticut, as well as assisting Joanne Chesimard, also known as Asata Shakur, in her escape from a New Jersey prison in 1979. Born Jarrell Wayne Williams on August 8, 1950, Shakur gained recognition for his work in holistic health care for black communities in the Bronx. He informally studied acupuncture and collaborated with the Black Panthers and the Young Lords and was one of the founders of the Lincoln Detox, a drug detoxification clinic in South Bronx that offered holistic drug rehabilitation. Supporters of Shakur believe he was targeted by the government to suppress his activism and he was a political prisoner driven by his efforts towards black liberation and his involvement with revolutionary black nationalist organizations in the 1960s. Dr. Matulu Shakur taught us that people struggle for liberation because they love the people. He will always be remembered for his continued commitment to an independent and socialist new Africa and for his battle cry, straight ahead. The statement from the Black Liberation Organization says, In his most recent years in prison, Shakur experienced significant weight loss due to his illnesses and treatments, contracted COVID-19 twice, and relied on IV feeding tubes intermittently in the months leading up to his release, according to his attorney, Brad Thompson. That was the obituary titled, He Will Always Be Remembered for His Battle Cry. Tupac's stepfather, Black liberation activist Mutulu Shakur, dies at 72. It was written by Inyamike Daniel, published July 11, 2023, at the AtlantaBlackStar.com website. My next reading is titled, what Happened to Kansas City's First School for Black Students and Its Historical Marker? I found this in the Kansas City Star newspaper and its KansasCity.com website. It was written by Eve Aspinwall and published July 22, 2023. Walking past Dr. Jeremiah Cameron Park in Westport, a reader noticed a marker for something called the Penn School and wrote to Westyear KCQ, a partnership between the Kansas City Public Library and the Kansas City Star to learn about it. The park, located on Broadway Boulevard between 42nd and 43rd Streets, marks the historic site where the Penn School used to stand. It was the first school west of the Mississippi River built specifically with the purpose to educate black children. Cameron, the park's namesake, was an alumnus of the school, an educator, and the second black member of the Missouri Parks and Recreation Board. The school's class of 1933 dedicated the plaque in the park to their alma mater in 1992. As of this writing, 
the plaque honoring the Penn School is missing, a reminder of the shaky role markers play in preserving local history and the challenges of making that history known. The inscription on the marker had told of Mrs. Samuel Ellis, the wife of a retired capitalist in the Kansas City area who helped establish the Penn School. Daniel Smith, a member of the Westport Historical Society, has extensively researched the school. He reported that Marion Ellis was one of its teachers from January to May 1870 and that her time was most likely shortened by motherhood. Marion most certainly did not start the school, even though she's inexplicably named as the founder in two or three separate histories that precede the plaque. The Ellis family consisted of Marion, Samuel, and their son Stafford. Together, they immigrated to the United States from England and settled in or near Westport, Missouri between 1868 and 1870. For years, both Samuel and Marion Ellis worked to support their family and did not begin to build wealth until Samuel entered the dairy trade around the turn of the century, establishing the Ellis Dairy Company. When Marion taught at the Penn School prior to the family's dairy days, the school had already been operating for roughly 30 years. The founding of the Penn School was tied to legislation following the Civil War in 1865 and was not the brainchild of one particular person. In that year, the Missouri legislature ratified a new, controversial state constitution. In addition to outlawing slavery in the state nearly a year before the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution did so on a national scale, the new state constitution contained provisions to remove Confederate sympathizers from public offices. It also allocated state funds to establish schools for black children. The actual date of the Penn School's founding is a bit murky. Any time after 1865 is plausible, but documentation points to a school for black children being established by the Westport School District at some point in 1867 or 1868, right around when Marion moved to the area and long before she could have established a school herself. The school did not have a formal name for some time. Residents simply called it the Colored School until 1895 when a Westport Citronel Examiner article described it as the Penn School. An unsupported claim holds that the school, which served the Steptoe community as well as other nearby black neighborhoods, was named for William Penn, the early American Quaker and namesake of Pennsylvania. However, it's more likely that the name came from the street on which it was located, Pennsylvania Avenue, Smith said, following suit with other schools of that time, like the Maine and Truth schools, which took their names from the streets where they were situated. The Penn School occupied at least four locations during its existence. Pennsylvania Avenue between Westport Road and Archibald Street, Broadway Boulevard near Archibald, a building that also housed the former St. Luke's African Methodist Episcopal Church at 43rd Street and Roanoke Road, and Pennsylvania Avenue between 42nd and 43rd Street, just north of the Ellis Farm. Generations of black Westport residents and Kansas Cityans attended the Penn School the most famous of whom was Kansas City jazz legend Charlie Parker. The 1954 Brown v. Board of Education landmark ruling brought about the closure of the Penn School following the 1954-55 school year. Members of the student body were integrated into other area schools. The Penn School building was too old and outdated for continued use. On May 26, 1955, the school hosted the last roundup, a gathering of former students, teachers, principals, and their families. Members of the public were also invited. The event featured music, a history of the school given by former teacher Marguerite Smith, skits, and an open house. After the closure, some Westport area organizations expressed interest in buying and preserving the old Penn School building. 
Most of that interest came from an offshoot of the Westport Historical Society called the Old Westport School Shrine. The Heart of America Real Estate Company bought the old schoolhouse with the intention of repairing the building and giving it to the Old Westport School Shrine. But by the time the sale was finalized, the group had lost interest. In 1967, the school building burned down. It wasn't until 20 years later that the 7th grade class of 1933 decided to raise money for a historical marker to preserve the school's memory. It took the alumni five years to complete the Penn School Memorial Project. But despite their work to memorialize the school, the plaque is no longer there and visitors to Dr. Jeremiah Cameron Park will see no signs of the Penn School or its legacy. When asked about what happened to the plaque, a representative from Kansas City's Parks and Recreation Department said that most likely someone had stolen the plaque to sell it for scrap metal, and the department does not have any plans to replace it. There are several images that go along with this story. One is a picture of the plaque that is now missing. I'm going to read part of the inscription that is on the plaque. It says, Penn School Historic Site. Penn School was the first school built west of the Mississippi River for the express purpose of educating black children. The school was established in 1868 by Mrs. Sam Ellis, the wife of a retired capitalist. The school was closed in 1955 and the building was destroyed by fire in 1969. The next photograph of the school is a black and white image from 1940. The picture shows a man wearing a white shirt, a white hat, and a tie and holding a board with the number 11-316-13. It was a picture that was used by the city to identify plats and parcels around the area. There is a 1924 passport photo of Samuel Ellis. There's another image of maps of the area from the 1940s. And there is the image of the Emancipation Ordinance of Missouri. This certificate is very colorful. It has images of Lady Liberty. It has the state seal of Missouri at the top. It has little angels in the corners, and it says, An Ordinance Abolishing Slavery in Missouri. That hereafter in this state there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except in punishment of crime, whereof the parties shall have been duly convicted, and all persons held in service or labor as slaves are hereby declared free. The next image is from the Westport Sentinel Examiner newspaper. It is a back-to-school announcement from September 14, 1895. It reads, Westport Public Schools. To patrons, the public schools will open as follows. High School, Knickerbocker, Melier, High School Primary, and Penn, Colored. School will open Monday, September 16th. Main and True Schools, September 23rd. Please send pupils not holding promotion certificates to the superintendent's office high school building for examination and classification before school opens. And finally, there is an image of a flyer for a reunion of the school. It says, On the Santa Fe Trail, the last roundup, Penn School, Thursday, May 26, 1955, from 7 to 9 p.m., program at 8, 4237 Penn. That was the article, What Happened to Kansas City's First School for Black Students and Its Historical Marker? It was written by Eve Aspinwall and published in the Kansas City Star on July 22, 2023. My next reading is titled, The U.S. Military Integrated 75 Years Ago, 
It forever changed the way America works. It was written by Mark Ramirez, published July 26, 2023 in USA Today at its usatoday.com website. When President Harry S. Truman addressed the NAACP in June 1947, becoming the first United States president to address a civil rights organization, he said he believed the country had reached a turning point. It was time to grant freedom and equality to all citizens. All Americans enjoy these rights, he told the group. And when I say all Americans, I mean all Americans. A year later, on July 26, 1948, Truman issued an executive order calling for the desegregation of America's armed forces, a historic gesture while putting Truman's political future at risk, which set the stage for civil rights advances for the 1950s and 60s and altered the nation's political landscape. There shall be equality of treatment and opportunity for all persons in the armed services without regard to race, color, religion, and national origin, Executive Order 9981 declared. The order marked not only a watershed moment for the military, but a sea change in the 20th century civil rights movement, said Robert Jefferson, an associate professor of history at the University of New Mexico. From that point on, America's democratic principles would be reflected and embodied in its commitment to all citizens, not just a few, Jefferson said. President Joe Biden will be a keynote speaker at a three-day public symposium marking the 75th anniversary of the event, starting Wednesday, July 26th, in Washington, D.C. The free event organized by the Truman Library Institute will feature military leaders, elected officials, journalists, and historians in panel discussions examining the legacy of Truman's landmark decision. He stepped forward and placed himself directly in the line of fire, even putting his re-election in jeopardy, said Democrat Representative Emanuel Cleaver, the symposium's honorary co-chair, In a news release announcing the event, his decision to eliminate racial discrimination within America's armed forces was a true display of moral leadership and a monumental contribution to the civil rights movement. Symposium participants include Representative James Clyburn, U.S. District Judge George Gergel of South Carolina, Librarian of Congress Carla Hayden, and U.S. Coast Guard Commandant Admiral Linda Fagan, with video remarks from former President Barack Obama. Truman's executive order evolved from a confluence of circumstances, including growing Cold War pressures, concerns over military manpower, election year gamesmanship, activism by civil rights pioneers like A. Philip Randolph and Mary McLeod Bethune, and Truman's own convictions about race and social justice. The real impetus was World War II, said Kyle Longley, a professor of history at Chapman University in Orange, California. When they went to Europe, they were not treated as second class in countries like England and France. Then they're asked to return home to a Jim Crow society. The ongoing Double V campaign had advocated for the rights of black American soldiers who were defending United States interests abroad, but was subject to secondary status at home. And Truman, a veteran of World War I, was moved by the 1946 beating and blinding of black veteran Isaac Woodward of South Carolina police, even as he was in uniform, an assault that sparked national fury. The lethal vitriol that Jim Crow's defenders unleashed on African Americans in the post-war moved Truman to act, said Adrian Lent Smith, an associate professor of history at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. In 1946, Truman created the first President's Committee on Civil Rights to assess American civil rights and propose measures to strengthen and protect them. The group's 1947 landmark report, to secure these rights, call for equal voting rights, 
equal employment and creation of a civil rights division under the Department of Justice to combat lynching and other hate crimes against black people. Truman's sense of moral responsibility, Lynch said, aligned with certain political considerations. Such a gesture would help woo black voters and shore up America's democratic bona fides as it pushed for Western decolonization of Asian and African nations amid the beginnings of the Cold War. The executive order signaled that African-Americans' activism had effects at the highest reaches of state power and reaffirmed that the federal government had a role to play in securing civil rights, Lynch Smith said. Truman's actions, she said, showed how the presidency could be more ally than adversary. Black people who had migrated to urban areas like Detroit, Los Angeles, and New York City to work in defense industries have become a growing political force, said Matthew Delmont, a professor of history at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. He recognized that black voters would be increasingly important to the future of the Democratic Party, said Delmont, author of Half American, the epic story of African Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. But Truman knew his action would also come with consequences, spurring strong pushback from Southern Democrats not ready to embrace equal rights. The so-called Dixiecrats, led by South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond and others, would pull away in defiance, ultimately transforming national politics. These were Southern Democrats that later became Southern Republicans, who are now the cornerstone of the Republican Party, Longley said. Instead, Truman won the 1948 presidential election in a squeaker while making significant progress on civil rights issues. Some military branches, in particular the Army and Marines, initially resisted Truman's order and integration wasn't complete until the early 1950s, according to Longley. The stroke of a pen does not do anything to change the culture, Longley said. High-ranking brass were just dragging their feet, making the same arguments that would later be made against women and gays. They said if you put these people into our units, it will destroy morale, or you're putting in inferior people. But you also had others saying, no, this makes sense. They just need proper training and leadership. Once in place, the military was more integrated than many American institutions, including most colleges and universities, a symbol of what the country could be. And the move, Delmont said, did make the military more effective. Before desegregation, black men and women with science and technical backgrounds had been assigned to menial roles as cooks and dish diggers. So even some branches were reluctant at first. They eventually recognized that desegregation is good for the armed forces. Clifton Daniel, Truman's eldest grandson and honorary chair of the Truman Library Institute, said his grandfather's actions cemented his legacy as a president committed to civil rights. My grandfather did what Congress would not, Daniel said. He desegregated the U.S. armed forces and signaled that Americans could no longer reconcile racial inequity with the values our nation had fought to uphold. There are some photographs that go along with this story. One shows President Harry S. Truman sitting behind his desk in the White House with the famous The Buck Stops Here sign prominently displayed. The next picture is an image of a historic plaque being dedicated in Batesburg, South Carolina, that recognizes the blinding of Isaac Woodward. I'm going to read what is on the plaque. It says, Sergeant Isaac Woodward, a black soldier, was removed from a bus in Batesburg and arrested on February 12, 1946, after a dispute with the bus driver. Woodward was beaten and blinded by a town police officer and the next day convicted in town court for drunk and disorderly conduct. The incident led Harry Truman to form a Council on Civil Rights and issue Executive Order 9981, which desegregated the U.S. Armed Forces in 1948. That was the USA Today article titled, 
the U.S. military integrated 75 years ago. It forever changed the way America works. It was written by Mark Ramirez and published July 26, 2023. My next reading is from Men's Health Magazine in its September 2023 edition, which is dedicated to the 50th anniversary of hip-hop culture. It's written by Keith Nelson and is titled, I'll Never Forget the Day Hip-Hop Saved My Life. It was May 12, 1998, two months after my 10th birthday and a week before DMX's debut album, It's Dark and Hell is Hot, was set to crash land in stores. In Brooklyn, $5 bootleg copies of albums lined the display cases of street vendors well before Tower Records could slap a $15 sticker on them. Occasionally, when I wasn't sure if there was enough food in the fridge for my mom to scrape together dinner, I would swipe a few copies from downtown Brooklyn to sell to my neighbors back in East New York. Typically, I'd end up with $6, earning enough to cover the cost of four chicken wings with shrimp fried rice from the local Chinese food restaurants that outnumbered grocery stores in my neighborhood. That was my goal that day. Hunger was all that was on my mind. A black vendor, likely three times my age and body weight, was tending to a customer when I saw my opportunity to snatch a few CDs and run. Before I could push off my heels, he lashed onto my wrist and put me an eyelash away from the barrel of his pistol. My whimpering apologies fell on deaf ears as he kept asking why I would try to take money away from him. I froze. Handling this type of situation never came up in textbooks or family advice. Pedestrians scurried away with the typical aloofness New Yorkers adopt as a means of self-preservation. My mind was blank. I didn't know if it was because humor was instinctively my third and preferred option after fight or flight, but all I could muster was, I'm just trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents. His bloodshot eyes softened, his grip loosened, his gun descended and he slid a chuckle out of a smirk in the way you do when you can't do anything but agree. I feel you were the last words he said before letting me tearfully run to the nearest train station. I never told my parents out of fear of the punishment that would come from stealing. It wasn't until a summer block party a month later that I actually heard Tupac recite the exact line that saved my life in the song, Keep Your Head Up. The man let me go because hip-hop translated my desperation to a language he not only understood, but spoke. He was trying to make hope out of shitty circumstances just like I was, and just like Tupac and Tupac's mother who made miracles out of every Thanksgiving, and my mother. Hip-hop was never just music to me after that day. It became a guide. Hip-hop is 50 years old. Yet its role in documenting and preserving the evolution of black men's health has seldom been acknowledged. How could it be when it's fallen on miseducated ears conditioned to hearing hip-hop but not listening? If you hear Grandmaster Flashes in the Furious Five's 1982 classic The Message, you'll recognize one of the earliest hip-hop records to bring the outside world into the grim circumstances black people endured. But listening requires a deeper level of understanding of the people being spoken about in the song. When Ed Duke Booty Fletcher wrote the lyrics, You got to have a coin in this land of milk and honey, he was speaking to the fatalist feelings black Americans experienced with the unemployment rate at 15% and crime the only job available for many. What's so incredible about the message is that it connected social circumstances to mental health says Olajide Williams, M.D., a professor of neurology at Columbia University and founder of the organization 
hip-hop public health. It connected poverty to mental health. It connected the social determinants of health to mental health. That song is Public Health 101. It's the social circumstances caused by structural racism that created the environment that pushes people to the mental health cliff. At its core, hip-hop is a celebratory art form built on the foundation of carving out time and space for joy in order to cope with the world. Remember, hip-hop was born when the Bronx was burning and people were dancing. Hip-hop helped black people see that where they were wasn't indicative of who they were and that we were all worthy of a good time. That's a through line from the Sugar Hill Gang creating the first hip-hop hit, Rapper's Delight, out of funky aspirations in 1979, to Kendrick Lamar inciting communal mosh pits by reassuring us we gonna be all right in a post-Michael Brown America. That's hip-hop. To celebrate hip-hop's 50th anniversary, Men's Health is doing more than paying homage to the music. We're illustrating how the genre has acted as a record of black men's health for the past five decades. Whether it's gun violence, addiction, HIV, AIDS, diabetes, or mental health struggles, Hip-hop has taken on the issues of each era that disproportionately harm black men and given young black men additional language to put a name to what they are feeling. Hip-hop is evolving, and each of the titans gracing our cover has had a multi-decade career thanks to his multifaceted influence over black men. Each of these men represents an archetype of manhood that impressionable black men could draw on to create their own identity, myself included. My high school gym teacher would probably throw his back out if he tried doing sit-ups while hanging upside down. 50 Cent did it with ease in his In The Club music video and kept going, building a television empire on the brute determination. It really was either get rich or die trying that black men who are systemically shut out of the American dream have to employ. When I was 12, I was a vegetarian for 24 hours after hearing Common say, my diet, I unswine on resurrection. A few years later on Love Is, when he rapped, as men, we were taught to hold it in. That's why we don't know till we're older men. It gave me the courage to be vulnerable with my feelings. Buster Rhymes transmogrified from Terminator 2 liquid metal into a silver armored symbiote in his What's It Gonna Be music video without damaging his credibility. And this was in the late 90s, referred to polarizingly as the shiny suit era, when many felt rappers were sacrificing the genre's rugged realism in favor of ostentatious commercialism. Method Man's All I Need depicted the ghetto as fertile ground for black love. Ludacris hasn't aged today since he served chicken and beer with a side of Southern Fried Reality in 2003. Wiz Khalifa kicked the lazy stoner millennial trope with every MMA workout he shared with his 40 million followers on Instagram. Through it all, hip-hop turned Pandora's box into a boombox, creating soundtracks for our deepest feelings and hidden fantasies. Whatever trauma and tragedy has shaped the best hip-hop, it is also a uniquely joyful form of musical expression, and people of all walks of life find a piece of their own truth in these uniquely black stories. You've likely never run for your life in a war zone, but outcast frantic B.O.B., Bombs Over Baghdad, unlocks the frantic desperation that propels you to your personal best time on a run. The late DMX snarling out, y'all gonna make me lose my mind up in here on Party Up, 
has helped someone working in a cubicle release frustrations about workplace microaggressions they've suppressed throughout the week. Anyone can form a brotherhood under Mob Deep's credo of, we end this together, son, your beef is mine's from eye for an eye. With every Peloton class inclusion, Pulitzer Prize recognition, and person who sees themselves reflected in a lyric, hip-hop shows that not only do the stories of black men matter, they help make the world move. Hip-hop's health influence hasn't always been positive, but if you know how to listen to hip-hop, you can hear the black lives it saved by simply existing. Now it's time to celebrate just how hip-hop did it. That article makes reference to the cover of the magazine, in which several hip-hop stars are dressed in various shades of black. The performers are Busta Rhymes, Method Man, 50 Cent, Ludacris, Common, and Wiz Khalifa. That was the article, I'll Never Forget the Day Hip-Hop Saved My Life. It was written by Keith Nelson and appeared in the September 2023 edition of Men's Health Magazine. That's all for this week. If you would like to hear this show again or listen to past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts or at the Audio Reader archives at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour. Thank you.